Hey guys, welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you'd like to support the podcast, please head over to locals.com and join the Lou Perez community. Vlouperez.locals.com. This next episode has been more than a year in the making. I've been trying to put this together and I finally did it. I accomplished it. Yeah. Um, I have Corinne Fisher as a guest. Corinne is a comedian. She's also the co-host of the podcast Guys We Fuck and also Without a Country. And joining us is Greg Lukianoff. He's with the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education and the co-author of the book The Coddling of the American Mind with Jonathan Haidt. Uh, It's a really fun discussion. We talk about cancel culture, free speech, body positivity, and uh, I hope you enjoy it, and please enjoy it right now. Greg Lukianoff is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, and Corinne Fisher is a hilarious comedian, also co-host of the uh, podcast Guys We Fucked. Um, <laughs> And uh, I did not know that. Yeah. I actually have one that's more related to the topics that we're talking oh, about today. Oh, that's yeah. newer, but also that that's the if, 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 related if, to the topic. In the, in the, you know, a couple decades ago, you would have needed a First Amendment lawyer to make sure you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I was, I've spoken to a litigator many times regarding uh, that podcast. Um, <laughs> but my my other podcast is called Without a Country, and that's with Joe DeRosa. And that's where we explore uh, the news from the perspective of the extreme right and the extreme left. And we try to find some sense in the middle and we discuss a lot of cancel culture and oh, free speech on that as well. Okay. I really messed up on that one guys. Sorry about that. No, uh, it's you, you, <laughs> honestly, in, since, since the last time that we discussed possibly doing this, that didn't even exist. We're only 40 episodes in. Uh-huh. What, do, what do you mean you messed up? I thought that was great. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you just didn't know it exi- existed, but I also didn't tell you. So yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, and, and also just for uh, full disclosure, um, for uh, quite a few years, I was a monthly donor to the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. Uh, so I, this is my way of kind of bribing Greg over here. But I haven't <laughs> been a donor since COVID hit because um, I had a kid and I figured okay. with, a, with a child and a plague, I might need to like save that few bucks every month. But I am, I am planning on, uh, on, I think uh, that's fair. Yeah. On donating again. So it's a, it's well, a, it's a and great, we thought, we thought things were going to quiet down because of COVID and things blew up. We're, we're getting more case submissions than we've, we've ever gotten in our history in the past couple of months. Yeah. Can we talk about that? What, what, what's, what's happening there? What do you think? Um, you know, I would say that, that, uh, for most of my career, and this goes to your podcast, Corinne, for most of my career, um, I, when people would talk about kind of like the culture war related to free speech on campus, I'd say that's absolutely part of it. Political correctness cases happen a lot, but an awful lot of them aren't all that ideological. Um, a lot of them are just like, you know, university presidents throwing their weight around, administrators who are not used to having anybody looking over the shoulder. But this summer, I think partially because, you, you know, because the, the murder of George Floyd, um, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely, you know, a, a moment to push for police reform. Um, so unfortunately, kind of um, mutated on campus into let's get people kicked out of school. Let's go after professors we don't like, including um, a guy. Uh, he, he, I mean, his, his persona was was a conservative bomb thrower, but I knew him since 2001. Uh, Mike Adams, after he got canceled, he killed himself um, mm-hmm. in July. I'm going to be writing a little bit more about that because um, 
uh, I, you know, I, I knew this guy for a long time and, and the way it was covered in the press was basically kind of like, it wasn't really saying he had it coming, but sh- surely people were saying that on, on Twitter. So anyway, there was an ideological explosion over, over the summer and I was kept on saying, oh, great, let's push her, you know, the following five things for police reform that could actually make the difference. And instead it was, let's find old texts uh, that, that people sent when they were in high school and make sure that they get their um, admission revoked. And there's not a lot you can do there in that situation. And let's go after professors who say controversial things. And we, there are Charles Nagy, um, or Nagy uh, down in Louisiana, I think. It's, we, we, we've sent 126 letters um, you know, just this summer. It, it's been crazy. Wow. And, um, and what I'm wondering is, is that happening? It seems like school isn't going on though like classes aren't necessarily taking place is this like is this sort of like extracurricular activities now that people are just like ah well school's school's not really happening so it gives me more time to uh, research uh, a, a possible mess up that my uh, professor made or something like that it's a it's a weird hodgepodge some schools are in person a lot of schools aren't we're even we are dealing with very non-ideological cases as well that involve people um, you know uh, universities having kind of like ridiculously poorly enforced covid rules but some I think something really weird happens to the way people think about the world and themselves um, when they're on when they're when their online personality is their full time personality. Yeah, Corinne, how do you um, how do you deal with that? Because you know, so much of the stuff of, of your work that you put out is online and just you know transmitted out, out into the ether. Um, uh, my online personality. Well, it's it's funny because people really don't understand even the notion of having an online personality anymore. They almost think like exactly everything that you do it, and which is especially odd as a comedian, because you know I'm obviously sometimes doing a character, which I have to explain to even my own mother. <laughs> right. I said if that, if everything I wrote comedically on Twitter was taken at face value, I should be uh, locked up and put in a men- mental institution immediately. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's difficult. And, and and kind of to piggyback off what Greg said, I, I feel like uh, similarly to when someone gets cast on Saturday Night Live or gets a big opportunity that we see in a something like Variety, uh, probably a similar thing happens when you, you know, get to your new year in college and you get your list of professors or you have a couple days, someone rubs you the wrong way. You start doing a little research the way you would on <laughs> someone before you go on a date with them and you start pulling up things. And if anything, if there's like, it's almost like we're all like journalists. And if we think there's a story with anything, we're going to start expanding with that on um, Twitter or Instagram. Uh, And certainly people like to do that with me. Like people will try to make stories off of like an in series of Instagram stories that I put out at three o'clock in the morning. If you say the wrong word, there's a lot of over apologizing in comedy. You'll even notice it a lot in like Netflix specials where someone will, t- will tell like a little bit of an off color joke. And if the audience doesn't erupt in laughter, they'll then included an apology in the special. Doug Stanhope actually did it, you know, like in a pandering manner (laughs) uh, comedically in his last one, but they'll include the apology um, and go back and explain the joke that they just did. And it's so distracting and kind of going against what comedy is, is an art form. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's just a little bit of, of how I see it. Uh, But also, you know, after the, the murder of George Floyd, uh, 
the original like cancel uh, that I experienced from 2015 reemerged. And surely I thought we have, you know, bigger fish to fry mm. than is something that I said, like, you know, years ago, there's mur- the people are dead. No, no yeah, one died right. when I did anything. Uh, but it reemerged. Uh, so I think not only do we see cancels happening more frequently, but we see them reemerging. And so that lends to the question, like, is there anything that you can do mm-hmm. to, you know, in quote, apologize or get back from something that you said, a a misspeak. And and it seems like that the easiest thing to do rather than like change actual policy, like Greg was talking about, like here are five policy uh, changes we can actually, that that if enacted would actually help with, you know, police, uh, you know, citizen relations. Sure. Uh, It's much easier to just be like, Oh yeah, let's let's Google uh, Corinne with all these you know different tags and see what comes up, and yeah. you know we could you know get rid of her. Or like right, we have, we, yeah, we have actual politicians who are in charge of policies that you know determine whether someone lives or dies, and everyone's like just really hyper focused on jokes comedians are telling or not telling. Yeah, I wanted to ask Corinne, did you see our movie? Can we take a joke? No, I no. Oh, I would you love gotta to see, see it. it. It's something. It, it's kind of funny because it comes out of the comedy cellar, and I was um, invited to speak at the comedy cellar way back in 2012 about my then new book by Noam mm-hmm. Dorman. And uh, Lee Camp, who was mm-hmm. the self-described like most leftist person on the panel, said he didn't like playing campuses anymore because he couldn't use his good material. Mm-hmm. And so we started doing this project where it was like initially it was going to be like, OK, I'm a big Lenny Bruce fan. Yeah. Basically the premise is Lenny Bruce wouldn't stand five minutes on the modern college campus. And at first it was a five minute video and then it was a 10 minute video. And then Ted Balaker got involved. And in 2015, we came out with this awesome, you know, relatively low budget movie about cancel culture. Uh, and I think we might have just been a little too early but you'd love it yeah that's funny that you say that because right before COVID hit uh I have a BFA in directing that's like what I originally went to school for before uh-huh. I went down this whole uh comedy path and I was uh James Altucher who who wrote the uh f- the famous article that New York is dead uh, uh okay yeah <laughs> um he was fu- he was financing it. it was you know produced by Aaron Berg and we were supposed to do this whole documentary on uh cancel culture that was going to be my first feature that I was directing mm-hmm. and now with everything that's you know happened we're we're we feel like you know there's larger issues it's still something to tackle but it's also gone beyond comedians so far beyond comedians at this point it's almost a just a regular part of uh our culture yeah Yeah, maybe i think this is a good uh segue into talking about the coddling of the american mind um because uh uh, you just celebrated that it's the two-year anniversary of the book yep. that you wrote with uh, with Jonathan Haidt. Um, uh, for, first off, like, what is it like writing a book with somebody? Because, like, <laughs> how do you? Um, I mean, how do you? Is it like a Lennon McCarthy, you know, sort of thing where like you do a chapter, he does a chapter? I think you mean McCartney. McCartney, excuse me. Not, not, <laughs> I meant Joseph McCarthy. Would be Joseph would be McCarthy. Awesome everybody remembers. Yeah, everybody remembers uh, Vladimir Lenin and uh, Joseph McCarthy. <laughs> and McCarthy. Boy, could those guys sing. <laughs> Um, what I was uh, co-authoring, uh, you know, actually it was exactly like John said it would be in that I did uh, a lot of the front end stuff um, and he did a lot of the back end stuff. When it comes to the the way we finally phrased everything, that's overwhelmingly height. 
Um, height, uh, it, it, you know, I, I have no, and I don't want to say this too loudly because I want to sell another book, but Height's a better writer than me. Like, like <laughs> he, he, he can take a, you know, a paragraph that I think is just, Mwah. you know, and that's, that's, that's my best prose and that's the shortest way you could explain that concept. And then he figures out a way to say it in 10 words and I'm like, oh, okay, I guess, I guess mm-hmm. that's better. Um, so it, the, I'd say that, you know, at times it was frustrating. I was desperately trying to get it done before my second kid was born. Um, and that didn't happen. Um, but, uh, uh, but by that point it, it was more height, um, toward, towards the end. I didn't, I, I, I wanted to make sure we had a, a we added a chapter on polarization right at the end. Cause I, I wanted to make sure that that was, that was there. And we talked about how, you know, th- this goes beyond, uh, just campus, um, and we also had a lot of help. Uh, there's a reason why I put my um, uh, acknowledgments page, you know, like uh, on the website, because, you know, you know five people from FIRE helped. Pamela Paretsky was our chief researcher. I, I try to give, you know, like she actually was the one who coined the term um, uh, safetyism. I had much lamer versions of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, co- co-authoring with someone like Height, you know, like we got through it and we still like each other. That's pretty good. That's good. And, and uh, yeah, what... What is uh, safetyism? Because it seems like that's sort of a, a, a running theme throughout the whole book. Um, I, I originally broke it into two different concepts, one that I called pseudo-safety, um, but they're kind of merged. Safetyism is uh, uh, when the idea of safety um, becomes a sacred value, where essentially mm-hmm. uh, there, when there's no cap on it. When something becomes sacred, basically what you're saying is there's no trade-off. Like you, um, you, you, since it's, it ceases to be rational, um, it's about absolute safety. And if there's nobody pushing back, you end up in situations where you're protecting kids from the kind of, uh, you know, stressors that they actually need to start feeling competent in the world. Um, and the one, and the one that the reason why I, I coined pseudo safety and John just thought it was too lame to, was partially because I, I, I wish people would stop using the word safety for quote unquote emotional safety. Like if you mean discomfort, if you mean uh, all the, but, but don't, co-opt a powerful world like safety if all you're really saying is this person makes me angry it, it is honestly a lot of ways that people people use this um mm. so safetyism you know is kind of an ideology um uh, uh and almost like a superstition you know like essentially that that there's no downside to absolute maximum safety when of course there is um you can't actually have perfect safety and still be alive mm-hmm. and um uh uh, in the book, there's a talk of like uh, f- fragility as mm-hmm. well, and and sort of, um, uh, in particular, how children are being sort of raised today, where um, they aren't being raised in an, uh, to be anti-fragile. Right. I, I guess I guess uh, I guess that's the way. Yeah. Uh, that, that, well, one of the great things about working with Height um, and and the two of us working together is that we just come to this. We come from completely different backgrounds, and we come to the same conclusions about lots of stuff. And we both came into the book really wanting to have the concept of anti fragility in there. This is a um, uh, a concept um, that the really difficult and narcissistic uh, thinker uh, Nassim Taleb came up with. Um, mm-hmm. I'm terrified of him, so I shouldn't be talking smack. But yeah, he, I think he's unbearable. He d- he deadlifts a lot. He talks about how much uh, he could deadlift on, online. Yes, and, and, it, and his taste in food. And he thinks he doesn't need an editor when he desperately needs an editor. But he wrote this book called Anti-Fragile, which is fantastic. I, th- I think he's a top-notch thinker. Um, and anti-fragility is the idea that we don't have a word for things that require stress 
stressors in order to, in order to grow and things that become stronger from stressors. And when you think about it, um, you know, both the human body is anti-fragile. Um, th there's of course like, you know, a, a, a limit where essentially like stressors will actually kill you. But uh, within that, you actually need them in order to, in order to thrive. And our intellectual system, um, in my opinion, is anti-fragile. It, it's John, Jonathan Rauch's idea of liberal science that essentially you need to knock around the ideas and to question them to actually get closer to something that resembles the truth. Um, so what I think we're doing to a generation of kids is we're disempowering them. I wanted, I, I never liked the title Coddling the American Mind. I, I, I fought it and fought it and fought it and lost and lost and lost. But I wanted the book to be called Disempowered because what I see is I'm not one of, I'm not, I, don't, I feel genuine sympathy for these kids because like these, these sometimes are, are literally genius kids, but are, they're, being, they're being scheduled from 9 a.m. or 6 a.m. to midnight. You know, mm -hmm. um, they're, they have the everyday life stuff taking care of them way later in life than, than, than previous generations do. And what does that result in? That results in a kid who knows how to get into Princeton, but doesn't know how to do anything else. And that's depressing. That's anxiety provoking. That means you don't have a, a, a um, locus of internal control. And of course, this is going to result in, uh, in, in a huge spike in depression and anxiety. Um, it was just even bigger than John and I predicted back in 2015. <laughs> Uh, That's very accurate. I'm like, I'm yeah. just sitting here. I'm like, yeah, I don't know how to do my laundry or <laughs> uh, do my taxes, but I own a home in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly, I, I mean, yeah, because it's like, yeah, it's like, I know how to run a, a, a business, but I don't have no idea how to like do these like very everyday tasks. And not, not, not having that self, uh, that sense of self-efficacy, that that's a stressor that basically makes you feel like you, you, um, in, in some senses that you're not capable in the world. And unfortunately, a lot of these parents, particularly the more helicopter ones, they don't seem to get that what they're really saying, what they're really whispering into their children's ears is, I don't think you can really handle this on your own. Mm -hmm. That does happen. That does happen a, a lot. I feel like my 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 parents actually, I think, did. Uh, I'm thir I just turned 35, uh, so I I think my parents did a did a pretty good job. But also, like, you're in school and you're doing 87, you know, extracurriculars. I was literally like leading the school play on the varsity baton twirling squad, editor <laughs> nice. of the school newspaper and and the yearbook. So it's like, there. When is there time to learn anything else? I would come home and be so. I've been exhausted since I was in the sixth grade. <laughs> which is something I didn't even notice until during quarantine. Uh, the first two months were the best months of my life that I can remember. And, and then I started thinking like, when's the last time you really took a, a rest and stopped like hyper trying to succeed? And it was sixth grade, I believe. So, uh, you know, yeah. but you know, one of the, one of those things, and I'm, I'm 38, I'm a, a few years uh, older. Um, but it, it, I don't look at the younger generation and, and say like, Oh man, I'm so much tougher than they are. It's, it's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't look at that. Oh man, I don't, you know, uh, you know, I'm a, I don't take shit or, you know, I'm not like that, but, but I just mm. can't believe the amount of stuff that people that, that the young, it seems like younger kids allow themselves to be just offended by and that it'll just completely throw themselves out of whack. I mean, uh, they're growing up. There were always times when I was going to, you know, you know, be pissed off at, at somebody else's, you know. Uh, opinion or something like that, or want to debate, but never to, uh, but the thought of allowing it to sort of derail my own trajectory or my own mm -hmm. mental well being just, I, I just can't imagine that. Like, I, my, my heart actually goes, goes out to kids that are, that, that just can't, yeah. 
handle that right now. And, and to be clear, I, I, and I, I probably don't say this quite enough, is, is that there's lots of positive things about Generation Z. And, and, and that was what we came to, that was the conclusion we came to, was that there was a shift, uh, there was a really dramatic shift on campus in, in, around 20, in the academic year 2013, 2014, mm. where suddenly students were demanding um, that people be disinvited, they're demanding new speech codes. It's the first time we heard of trigger warnings and microaggressions, um, you know, outside of ac strictly academic uh, circles. And one of the things that sort of piqued my interest was they're making kind of medicalized arguments for it, rather than like, I hate this guy, this guy's a bigot, this guy's got to get off my campus. They were saying, well, it will be psychologically, medically harmful to almost always these people over there um, if, this, if this person comes to campus. And that's what got my antenna up because I'd been thinking for a long time, and this is the basis of both the original article and the book, that it's as if we are teaching the habits of anxious and depressed people to a generation of students and then being shocked that they're anxious and depressed. Um, and this is how cognitive behavioral therapy comes into this because mm. I think parents to a degree, K through 12 to a degree, and college certainly, at least a lot of them, teach students to overgeneralize, to engage in binary thinking, all of, this, all of these kind of things that if you practice them, you're going to be depressed and anxious. And then we act like, whoa, how, how did this happen? Yeah, that, that really resonated with me, um, those parts of the book, because um, I had never heard of cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, you know, CBT, uh, specifically, but then I was like, ooh, catastrophizing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, everywhere. I yeah. do that. Like I, you know, I, if, if I have a, a phone call Everyone that's coming that. up and then it's like, oh, well, you know, somehow I'm going to lose a testicle. It's going to be the worst. <laughs> this phone call is going to, going to lead just me down a terrible road. And, and also the, uh, um, spending, focusing so much attention on negativity than, than positive stuff. And, and, uh, Corinne, I, I don't know if, 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 uh, if you can like sort of feel me on this, but, uh, I'm very fortunate that I get to do comedy for a living, but yet mm -hmm. sometimes I find myself like not being joyful <laughs> where it's like, here I am making jokes, making people laugh and making a living doing it. But yet I'm not able to find the joy in it. And I well, feel historically, like how many comedians do we know who are joyful no, in their I know, everyday yeah. life? <laughs> I mean, that's not really a characteristic. Dep I guess it depends on what pills they're <laughs> popping or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, I'm not on antidepressants, never, never have been, but I certainly feel like I'm one of the only comedians who isn't. And funnily enough, <laughs> uh, the, the first time I never was in therapy my entire life. And kind of when I became a public person, because I was, it was, you know, it was when I was 30 years old, which I think you're, is, is kind of old to transition from complete unknown to ever, you know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, knowing the most intimate details of your life. And that's why I went into therapy that along with the fact that, you know, again, at the age 30 plus, I had the realization that I had a nice childhood. Well, I mean, I always knew I had a nice childhood, but I didn't know that was not the norm. Mm. See, I thought like, you know, these cases of people, you know, coming into the world with intense emotional trauma uh, were a couple people whose stories we, you know, would see in a Lifetime movie. But apparently... I'm like one of three people I know in a, in a large, <laughs> in a large circle of friends and, and colleagues who did not experience uh, childhood trauma. And even when I say that people will fight me on that. And it's like, so you're going to, so it, which make, it makes me go crazy because it's like, oh, are you going to try to make me go back and find trauma in something I found no trauma in? Mm -hmm. um, and people will even say, well, you probably did have uh, childhood trauma, but you're just maybe perhaps more resilient than others. And mm -hmm. there is this culture of going back and kind of like 
looking through things, almost combing through things, looking for problems where there were none. Cause mm-hmm. I have no problem in like unpacking something that maybe has been like, you know, weighing down your soul. But I do find my friends and colleagues uh, going on this, you know, journey almost for trauma to belong or to make excuses for things that are, are just fixable in your present life without, you know, being mad at your parents for seven months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like an identity marker in a way where it's yeah. like, if, if like, oh, you have a traumatic uh, childhood. Okay, that that's the new norm. And, mm-hmm. and right. now you get to, um, it, it's almost like you, you get a little bit more public cachet from, from being mm-hmm. able to do it, where it's sort of like, um, in, in a way, it, it's it's more respectable, you know, mm-hmm. or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and I mean, well, obviously there are people who went through a lot, and especially yeah. in comedy, a lot of, I've heard a lot of terrible stories. And then I've also heard a lot of things that's like, I, don't, I think you probably should stop acting like a shitty human being and, and, and stop blaming that on trauma. You know, mm-hmm. you're 39. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, you know, I wrote a book where I talk about how close I came to killing myself. Um, mm-hmm. So, you, you know, like, 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 and that's, and I, you know, I decided I needed to be honest about yeah. that because otherwise these people, I don't think would take me seriously, but there's something that we also take seriously in the book, which is the diff- the class difference, the economic class difference between um, uh, what different groups experience. Yes. And there's something called adverse childhood experiences. And that's like abuse, alcoholism, like having, having these kind of things in your house a lot when you're a kid. Mm-hmm. And that's those are disproportionately experienced, unfortunately, by people in the in, in the lower economic socioeconomic class. Um, and we make this distinction to be clear, like we're talking about the kind of kids who end up at a lot of these fancy schools. Um, and, and that's an entirely different experience. But there's a book right. called Our Kids by um, Robert Putman that talks that really does a good job of addressing how big the socioeconomic gap is. I do think, unfortunately, there is this kind of um, uh, 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 guidance almost to sort of like uh, uh, excavate things from your past that actually, yes. um, and, and what, when, what's f- funny is I think sometimes people, and I think it's probably true that at least there's always someone out there who just wears it and doesn't really feel it. But what, what breaks my heart is that I think in a lot of cases, people look back and thinking that there must be something in their deep unconscious that, that, that is creating these things. Um, mm-hmm. And they can, they, they can talk themselves into, you know, panic attacks, depression, all this kind of stuff. And, and I think that it's incredibly irresponsible of a lot of universities to know that there's this huge uptick in anxiety and depression among their incoming students. And then to tell them, you know, to teach them about an ideology in which they are, you know, both oppressor and oppressed almost always, um, that there's nothing they can do about it. It's hopeless. You live in a fundamentally um, corrupt society um, that has no redeeming value. And the only thing you can rely on, you know, as long as you have sufficient guilt and shame, then you might be kind of a good person. That's really messed up. Yeah. And, yeah. and, the, and those kinds of ideas leaving um, academia and going yeah. out into uh, into the world. It's pretty crazy. Yep. Yeah, well, I was, yeah, I was gonna say, kind of for, for Gen Z, I, I see a lot of like, you know, and, and I get it, like where you're, you're living up, you're growing up in a world that's ent- entirely internet based, which even me, you know, me, you know, Facebook was really became popular when I was almost graduating college. So, mm-hmm. and I can't imagine how that would have been to have in middle school or high school. There was already mm-hmm. like oh, yeah. weird, weird handcrafted websites where you could rate the hottest girl in, you know, in your high school. So imagine if you had the, the platform that was way more functioning, like a Facebook. Um, but I do think, you know, you're surrounded by the news. The news is always catastrophic. 
catastrophic. So that makes you feel anxious all the time. And then it's reinforced that you have to be politically and socially involved. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention, as people like to say. And mm-hmm. so if you feel like, you know, you can't start an organization or, or organize a march, being openly angry and, and finger pointing towards people does count as doing something and being politically active. And when we call others out on uh, their their missteps, that takes the attention away from us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there was a quote that um, was attributed to Philip Ross, but I, I've never been able to figure out who actually said it. But the 90s was a decade uh, when people started to believe that feeling bad was doing enough. Mm. Mm. Wow. And Corinne, how did, um, uh, how did your new podcast come about with, uh, with Joe? Uh, I mean, yeah, a lot of it was, a lot of it was actually on my end, I had, uh, been dating during the 2016, uh, election, someone who, uh, you know, during the course of that became, was a Trump supporter. Like when we started dating Donald Trump running for president, wasn't even a concept. So we were already dating. I was already in love with this person. Um, uh, he, you know, said he wanted to vote for, for Donald Trump. And I've always been someone who, even though I've always been, you know, grew up in a liberal household and, uh, you know, left leaning for sure. I really have always found the left to be somewhat obnoxious in, you know, stating that their opinion was was right because you know I know I don't think many Republicans wake up in the morning like trying to be a bad person I think that's the whole you know tug here we all rub I'm sorry rub here not tug Jesus uh that's the rub here we all <laughs> that guys we fucked it's hard to get out of your system um <laughs> Uh, I'm like, also, I went to bed at six in the morning. So forming sentences is, uh, is, is hard right now. Um, but that's the thing we all, we all think we are right. We all think what we are doing is just for the most part. I don't think there's that many evil people in the world. Cause well, first of all, I think to be evil, you have to be quite smart and most people aren't. Um, (laughs) but, but that, that came about. So, uh, I would read an article on something and then he would read an article on that same thing in a Republican, uh, news source and I would read it in a left-leaning news source and it would be about the same thing but there would be a lot of different details uh and so if you're you know going into this and like say I only read the Washington Post I'm always going to get that perspective and when you also look through the authors a lot of times uh especially if you're reading about the same types of things and that's your interest level you're really only getting one two three four five people's perspectives so it's skewed the way they think and the way that their boss at that uh, periodical uh, wants them to think and tells them that they have to, you know, lean the article that way. Um, and so it, it's just about, you know, kind of being the average American, but taking uh, a left news source and a right news source and finding where the truth is mm-hmm. and why there might be this whole, uh, like a, you know, such a strong disagreement between two parties living in the same place. And they kind yeah. of get into that in the social dilemma, uh, which I watched over the quarantine, uh, how even your Google searches will be affected by how your computer and Google starts to learn how you think mm-hmm. and they can give you data that will just continually back up your way of thinking. 
thing. And statistically, I knew that's true. I mean, I interned for Michael Moore. And so if we're talking about statistics numbers, you can always, mostly always, unless your you know, th- thoughts are completely crazy, uh, you can always find a statistic to back up what you want it to back up. And I found that even with like things like rape statistics on guys we fucked, like you can make it seem a lot worse than it is. You can make it seem like it's not that big of a problem based on who did this research. Mm-hmm. Oh, Greg, did you want to pop in there? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much to comment on. Yeah, you might want to talk to. OK, so we've got lots, lots of things for Corinne. Um, we should definitely talk about we, we've been thinking about doing a follow up to Can We Take a Joke just because everything's gotten so bad. Um, yeah. I'd, lo- I'd love to chat with you about that. When it comes to things related to sexual assault, um, Fire has uh, some really great lawyers who um, uh, including Samantha Harris, who's been w- with us forever, who's probably the top lawyer in this field, who, who deal with the situation on campus and about how uh, people who are accused of ultimately harassment, but har- but assault is somehow considered to be just an extreme form of harassment, which was kind of a, a, a weird move in the law. But um, Samantha works a lot with that. And and, she, and if you know students who are accused, you know, uh, falsely, definitely, you know, let me know about that. And finally, when it comes to the media situation, um, yeah, I, I, I have a blog called The Eternally Radical Idea that I just started up, um, just you know, partially so I can, I mean, I, 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 for example, to have a, like a, a workbook so I can say goofy things. So for example, I'm right. writing something <laughs> about Fleabag and Noom today and how it relates to um, the future of freedom. <laughs> you know, it just- Wow, it, I'm like, say, I'm, I'm very fascinated by Noom because so many people have been like, yeah, it's not, not nearly as good as Weight Watchers. But, you know, I, I, I lost 45 it. pounds on it, man. Wait, on uh, Noom? Uh, well, I'm also a big behavioral psychologist. Can, can you tell me about Noom? Hmm. What what is what is Noom? Noom, and, Noom, and, Noom is basically an app on your. Can phone. they sponsor this podcast? No, uh, potentially. Yeah, put it uh, out there. <laughs> it's an app on your phone, and it primarily starts you down the path of just counting your calories, but using volumetrics. Um, uh, first, which is also brilliant because volumetrics, which basically just means eat eat food with, with high water content, with, with, with low calorie density. Mm. And that's the one they start with, which is brilliant because that's actually the one that has the best evidence behind it. And they go down and down and, eat, and, and they do little tiny lessons um, all throughout the day. Uh, you, you can do them all at once. You have a coach that you can talk to. You have a community um, that you can uh, bond with. I'm, I'm actually too much of a loner. I couldn't do that part. But, for, but research-wise, it's all just really well thought out. But the article is ultimately kind of like, wow, this is where we're headed. You, you add a little bit of artificial intelligence to this, even a relatively mm. primitive one, and you could have a system that, for example, teaches people cognitive behavioral therapy, or it could, te- or it could teach um, Annie Duke's idea of decision hygiene. But then the next step is, wow, okay, what's going to happen when our phones can always tell us the right choice? Mm. Hmm. Yeah. And you lost 45 pounds? 45 right? pounds, yep. Wow. And and um uh, after losing that weight, how do you feel like day to day? Awesome. You, yeah. I, I, I feel uh I had a tumor um about a year ago wow. in my jaw, which is one of the reasons why, you know, I'm always going to be wearing a beard from now on. Um that had to come out. And it was pretty, you know, they actually had to like take a whole chunk out. I lost ah. a nerve there and everything. Wow. Um, and to be a, a year away from that and feel about as healthy as I've ever felt in my life, probably more is, is, is a welcome surprise. It's, it's, uh, you know, on, on, the issue of, of, uh, of, you know, weight and, you know, you have stuff like the, you know, fat positive movements and, and that mm. sort of thing where it becomes it, where it's astonishing that, you know, 
just telling someone, hey, you know what, if you if you lost weight and you exercise and you eat better, yeah. um, not only is it good for your overall you know bodily health, but it's yeah. gonna it's gonna have really good um, uh, side effects on your mental health as well. Yep. Um, and somehow it became evil to share that just, uh, I don't know, common information. I have, I have some sympathy for that partially, you know, like my, my, um, I'm very close with someone who's obese. Um, okay. I'll just put it that way. And believe me, she, she knows that she has to change it. And the, and, and the difference between knowing something intellectually and then figuring out how to do it is most of your life. Um, so I, 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 I get the, uh, sensitivity around that. Um, I, but if someone gets in trouble for, you know, cracking a fat joke, this was actually, this was, we had a 2003 case at university of New Hampshire, um, that uh, I didn't realize was going to be so controversial because of the fat shaming aspect of it. Mm -hmm. A student had posted, um, he was tired of people slowing down the elevator in his dorm. And when they were just not going up one floor, they were going down one floor. And he's like, for God's sakes, take the stairs. And so he wrote something about the average freshman girl gains 15 pounds in her first year. There's something you can do about that. Take the stairs. He made little flyers about it. He was kicked out of uh, the dorm. He had to live in his car in, 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 uh, in, in autumn in New Hampshire. He was man he, mandatory psychological counseling. He, he was sentenced to mandatory psychological counseling. He had to read like 12 books, write a approved apology. It was, it was one of these things where, where uh, you know, they really threw the book at him. It was so bad that The Daily Show co contacted University of New Hampshire um, to, to find out about that. And that's what got the university to back off. But that was it, as a First Amendment lawyer, that's about as easy of a case as I've seen in my life. But later on, even though I think I've, I've defended much more controversial stuff, you know, uh, when we have, you know, yeah, um, you know fe female fans of fire, that's the one case that they, they, they tend to think, well, that was that was kind of crossing the line. Yeah, well, I think I think just as a woman, you, you just hear that and you're like, mm, this guy's an abusive boyfriend, like emotionally, like, it's just a weird thing to point out that only, even though I statistically, I'm sure it's true. And, you know, it is just kind of a lot of times, it's easier in many ways for women to gain and certainly retain weight for uh, lots of reasons. I would punch that guy in the face if I saw him. <laughs> I mean, and I'm very like, I'm very, uh, you know, I, I, I'm very conflicted about the weight thing. I've had so many experiences with, with it, and I also have been overweight. Um, you know, first of all, to get to become obese, it's it's very little, especially I'm under five foot four, and women under five foot four, like our whole body structure is is actually different, and the way we lose weight when you are under five foot four as a woman is actually completely different. So it's way harder. And uh, first off, uh, I had an experience where one of those like you know women's magazines, like a Cosmo type magazine, was sponsored a comedy festival I was on. At that time, I was 25 pounds heavier than I am now, which on someone of, you know, my height looked like a lot. Like I looked, if you, I looked like a, you know, a fat person in the, in the face. Uh, and I, the doctor had certainly told me uh, that I was o overweight, you know, and this is you know, like my pediatrician had told me, uh, you know, when I was because I saw that my pediatrician up till when I was 18 and then my OBGYN had, you know, had mentioned it. So like doctors still have no problem telling you when you're, o when you're overweight. And it always makes me laugh. Cause you're like, Jesus, this is all you need to, to become obese. Like I understand why people mm. have these bad feelings about their body, but I'm glad they told me because I do want to be healthy. Mm. Um, and so at that time in my set, I literally had 
10 minutes on my own body and like fat jokes about myself because it was the only thing I had control over at that time because no matter what I was doing, I just couldn't lose the weight. I used my fitness pal. I went on all these different kinds of diets, you know, eating for your blood type. Nothing was working. I was working out all the time and just it wasn't taking. Um, And so I actually dropped off that festival because we got an email maybe 24 hours before we were supposed to perform that all these things that we weren't allowed to talk about, including like body image. Mm -hmm. And so I replied and I said, you know, I've 10, I can't talk about my own body. And the woman who was organizing the show said, listen, like I, she, she, in the email I got, I wish I could remember it word for word, but she basically said, listen, I don't like being fat either. And I think it's not good. Uh, but this is just like, we can't talk about this because it will be triggering to the audience. So I now lost the control, uh, of being able to speak about my own body because it might be upsetting to others, even though it was my firsthand experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, you know, uh, cut two years later, I was still having a lot of problems with my weight and I would talk about it on guys. We fucked. And I got so many emails kind of just saying like, you're getting older, just like be body positive. This is just like what's happening. And I, I know how my body works really well. And I just knew something was wrong. And so after two years, I finally uh, found an endocrinologist who was able to diagnose me with, uh, insulin resistance, you know, put me on a keto esque diet and, a daily dose of metformin Foreman, in the course of like a month and a half, I lost, you know, 10 pounds and it just kept dripping off. Mm-hmm. Um, and what had been happening was like, I was working out so much that I was gaining muscle mass underneath, but the fat wasn't burning off the top. So I was actually just getting fatter the more I tried to lose weight. But had I just, you know, kind of celebrated my body and everything that everyone was saying, I would have never found the help that I needed. And um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And also, if you look up statistically, uh, you know, if you want to kind of use woke cultures facts against them to just be okay with being overweight. Um, it is, it is, you can argue that it's racist because if you go to the, the government's website, statistically, the people who are suffering from obesity are more people of color and it's killing those communities at a much higher rate. Cause I always try to, you know, fight people on, on things that they would normally fight me uh, from that, you know, from that angle. And uh, so that usually works if you, you know, call them a racist. You, you that could, works all all the way around. Just yeah. white, just white people calling each other racist always kind of works. You, you could you could tell if Lou is sad because sad Lou has abs. That's <laughs> oh it. yeah, like, I mean, that like I'm 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 one of those guys where I'm like, same. I'm sad, and then I I you know I lose I lose a little weight. But um, I think it also comes comes down to um, uh, I think I think when when people hear about like trying to lose weight, they immediately think, oh, you're trying to look a certain way. Um, mm. as opposed to so much of it is like, no, I want to feel a certain way. I want to feel better. My, my wife, um, she, um, uh, teaches bar classes. She teaches Pilates as well. And she has people of all different body types in, in her classes. And it's not, it's not one of those training systems, like one of those, like, uh, you know, hit, uh, training systems where right. you're going to get, you're going to get jacked, but it's like, no, you, you want to, you want to be able to move. You want to be able to, uh, you know, live your life and enjoy your day. And it's not yeah. necessarily about like, yeah. oh, you, you know, you want to fit into, you know, whatever size, uh, whatever size dress. Mm-hmm. I, and this, uh, this allows me to make a pitch for something that I really want to promote uh, while I'm on here. Um, sure. uh, my, 
Uh, well, Noom, absolutely. <laughs> I, 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 I want to be a consultant at Noom. Um, the, I, I, I think it's brilliant. But um, uh, we, we did a documentary. Uh, Nico Perino, who's a, my VP of, uh, of um, uh, communications, he, he just took it on himself, used our video team, and made a documentary about the life and times of Ira Glasser. Uh, and this was the former head of the ACLU. And he was w w one of the guys who, you know, helped defend the Nazis at Skokie, you know, um, mm -hmm. and he, he took over right over that. And that was one of the reasons why I, you know, became an ACLU guy when I was little. I was like, wow, you're that principled, you know, that you'd actually be willing, willing to do that. And so sometimes I, I give people perspective by being kind of like, yes, it's a fat joke, but also Nazis have free speech rights. Like, and you're misunderstanding one of the values of free speech that, that doesn't get enough um, uh, coverage. If, if people talk about marketplace of ideas and maybe your idea is stupid, this keeps happening. It's kind of annoying. Um, uh, the market, marketplace of ideas, but ultimately, you know, the most important value of free speech is just knowing what people really think and why. Um, and if you take that perspective, you start to understand, I think, a lot more about the country. But anyway, Mighty Ira, um, it's amazing. Like, uh, it doesn't look like a, a, a film made, made by a first time filmmaker. It's mm -hmm. it's just gorgeous. And the story is really compelling. And it shows, you know, kind of like the, uh, the what it meant to be kind of left of center when I was growing up was the ACLU model. You know, like mm -hmm. what was the idea that we are absolutely unapologetically always pro free speech no matter what. And unfortunately, what I considered to be kind of like the dissident wing uh, of that group, the academics, who really kind of want more control over speech, I think they've essentially won. Yeah, I'm, I'm a friend of, uh, of of Nico's, and I got to see the the documentary. And I think one of the one of my favorite things about the documentary is the um, the footage you have of the the Nazis that you know that that took part in in the uh, uh, in, that wanted to march through Skokie, and uh -huh. it's. Uh, it, it feels like another world. It feels yeah. like it's definitely a different time period, but it feels like 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 what planet is this? Well, it's one of the things I actually love about, you know, free speech. I remember actually walking by the Westboro Baptist Church without knowing who they were way back in like the 90s, you know. Mm -hmm. And what, what was, you know, great, one of the reasons why I'm smiling about that footage about the, the actual Nazi rally is you get to see what a bunch of jackasses and idiots oh, these yeah. guys are. And this guy's like running around trying to make sure his pretty little Nazi rally is going, going well. He's really critical of everybody. And I really, like, at one point I was cracking up because it felt like he wanted to show. It's like, you're turning this Nazi rally into a disgrace. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah, it's definitely yeah. not the um, you know the superior race was not on let, display. Let, let the horrid there. people show their horridness. Um, it, it, it's not nearly as persuasive as people think. And when it comes to free speech, you know, like the Westboro Baptist Church, one of my favorite incidents of like how you deal, how you counter, you know, uh, this speech. Um, uh, the Westboro Baptist Church one time protested Comic Con in San Diego, and all of Jesus. the all of the people they come out like dressed like Bender with like kill all human signs and like you know like it, it's it, the nerds completely mocked these people. Um, it, it just turned into a wonderful joke. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think it was uh, the comedian Lisa Lampanelli who did a thing yes. uh, where um, there was some kind of march or something like that, and she raised money like for a counter march and said, okay, for every mile uh that you know these uh, bigots march 
I'm right. going to raise money for a like an LGBT cause. She and- gave like five, it, it's actually in Can We Take a Joke, um, the the documentary we did, and I think it was um, every for every person who shows up to protest um, uh, uh, this gay, gay rights project, she would donate something like a significant amount of money. It was like 500 mm-hmm. bucks for every single person to to um, uh, something that promoted uh, gay rights. So it, it was it was nice to turn that into a situation where the more of you come, the more I'm going to spend. Yeah. And I wonder just um, when it comes to and, and one of the things that I was attracted to with the ACLU, like um, uh, I, I got to uh, talk with uh, Nadine Strassen. Uh, I was going to bring her up. She's yeah. one of my absolute favorite people. I have all her books. She's been on Guys We Fucked twice already. <laughs> Most interesting. Well, because it's wonderful because, you know, a, a lot of our uh, listeners are, you know, Gen Z in, uh, age. And, you know, so it's this constant struggle of like trying to explain to them like the value of comedy and like not getting offended when they come and see us live. And like you can mm-hmm. be someone who advocates for women's rights, but also like can take a joke about yourself because, you know, what we noticed when we started that show was that feminism really lacks a sense of humor. And I think that's part of the reason sometimes we get uh, caught up in ourselves. Um, And her argument has always been like, you know, one of the first things to go when free speech uh, starts getting taken away is is it actually hurts women and Mm -hmm. women's uh, right to choose. And so she goes into that a lot. She's also uh, defended pornography. She has a whole book defending pornography. and, and freedom of speech, and she's oh, just one of the most fascinating, wonderful people. Yeah, yeah. One of the, one of the cool things about my job is um, I've gotten to become friends with some of my heroes. Uh, you know, so like I'm friends with Nadine, and I'm friends with Jonathan Rausch. You know, like, and, and yeah. these are two 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 of my all time free speech heroes. And one of the things I love about Nadine is that she'll always she has no qualms whatsoever about talking about the sexual aspect about it. And even yeah. if it makes people uncomfortable, she she she's such a good she, she's such a good representative. She can kind of like move the conversation over to how important this is for sexual freedom mm-hmm. um, and, and just in, in a way that is just so persuasive um, and, and, you know, maybe incredible. Her, her book, uh, Hate, um, yeah. uh, Why We Should Oppose It With Free Speech, Not With uh, Repression, um, is probably the most conclusive, like as far as like the, the best arguments uh, to, that hate speech should be protected, um, I, almost every single one is in that book. Yeah. And I, uh, w- what I've what I've sort of found is um, when it comes to free speech, uh, if if you are a you know a big proponent of it, a big defender of free speech, it's almost like nothing else matters um, mm-hmm. for me. Like to be able to have conversations or, or to hang out, um, there are so many people that I know where I have no idea what they think about economics. I have no oh, idea what they, what they think about policy and all that because we just keep all we talk about is like, oh man, can you believe like they're trying to shut down this? Like, why would they, why would they do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a weird, a weird position where I don't know, uh, I don't know what, what political labels mean anymore mm-hmm. because I'm like, uh, all the people I get along with are, you know, there'd be liberals in the, uh, in the nineties and yeah, they're, that- you know, and that's healthy. And, and, and I, I think we've reached a stage where we think that people who politically disagree with us are at some deep level evil. Um, yeah. And it's a very elitist, upper class kind of way of seeing the world. It, it's classic. It's, it's very Victorian. Um, <laughs> but, 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 the, um, but it is sad, though. It, you know, and of course, I have no problem also saying that, that uh, Trump has, to say the least, polarized things even more um, right. and, and, and made that more intense. Uh, the, thing, the accelerants to a lot of this, pro- this process, and I, I wrote a book called Freedom From Speech, where I talked about, I think, the threats from freedom of speech. Uh, to freedom of speech are going to go up as other things get better. 
um, as we have more technological options, as we can not have to live in centralized cities. Um, I just think that it's a problem of progress, that essentially uh, free speech will, will, will become more threatened as, uh, as, as other things uh, get better. But two things that, and I think this would have happened no matter what, even without higher education and either without social media, but social media made it faster, um, sped up this process. Higher education, which could be dampening it down, uh, made it accelerate it as well. Um, and, I, and I do think the 2016 election uh, sent it into the stratosphere. Yeah, I wonder, um, we are recording this before the November 3rd uh, election. Um, I have no idea what's going to happen <laughs> between the two weeks, you know, uh, Shenanigans f- is what, yeah. I, what I'm predicting, and that's why we're. I live in D.C. I live in downtown D.C., and I'm uh, getting out of Dodge uh, for the election because have you, I got a, uh, I got a have, two-year-old and a four-year-old, and I don't want to be here. Have you had trouble uh, dining outside without raising your fist in solidarity <laughs> with uh, the wretched I have yet to run into that. I, I, I'm the wrong person to demand I do something or say something. Um, it's kind of funny because I, I think of myself as a relatively easygoing person, but when someone starts telling me exactly what to do, I can't and my yeah. wife my, my wife has seen this and i, I was t- texting about this and people thought i was saying i'd be brave in the face of this i'm like no no i physically can't take orders <laughs> like <laughs> some, some part of me is like no <laughs> um but i haven't run into that actually I, I overall outside of like what's going on near the white house things have been pretty pretty calm here in dc Oh, that's good. My agent, uh, actually, we got some offers to travel to do comedy during election week, and he advised us not to travel. And like, if you know anything, you know, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you have book agents and, you know, agents, if they're telling you not to actively make money, like, wow, my entire profession, that's never happened. How how has New York been? Because definitely like the coverage makes it sound like it's been terrible, but yeah, of of course. I mean, I I think you see uh, like more homelessness, more drug use in like the like, you know, near Penn Station and and those locations. But other than that, it's just more like a street fair vibe. It feels more European. I live in the East Village. So it's just uh-huh. like a lot more outside. And, you know, there are more uh, homeless people, but it's not like this violence and chaos that the news would have you believe. Because mm-hmm. like people will re- reply to me on Twitter and be like, how can you still be in New York? It's like, there there were months here when it was actually the most pleasant it's been because all the people who shouldn't be here to begin with left. <laughs> and, and also it comes down to, uh, I think, you know, uh, depending on where you are situated in New York, you know, mm-hmm. so it's like I'm, I'm, in, right. I'm in I'm in Brooklyn Heights. Mm-hmm. Uh, the promenade is still there, um, although mm-hmm. uh, people have been leaving a lot of weird shit on the promenade. Some guy's been doing like a leaving behind, I guess, like a makeshift hookah. Just like on there the promenade, and I'm like, what? What's going Ooh, on? free What's hookah. Going? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 yeah <laughs> the worst but, thing to do during co- yeah. <laughs> cut through. It's like cut a, a cut up Mountain Dew bottle or something Public like that. Public hookah. Yeah. Um, but what could co- go wrong? Yeah, uh, Corinne. Um, so we have only like a, a few minutes. What's it been like? You know, uh, doing comedy. Have you been been able to get up a lot and do do live comedy? Yeah, I mean, certainly not as much as I had been. I would say like pre-pandemic, I was doing when I was in town about 15 shows a week. Um, you know, and these are like, you know, low paid or or no paid shows sometimes. Uh, and now I it's probably down to like three spots a week. So very difficult to write new material because you just don't have this, you know, polishing process, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to do like, you know, three three sets on Friday, then three sets on Saturday, I would usually, you know, show up on Monday with you know, five new minutes of material. Um, so I don't have that, that luxury anymore. Uh, but comedy, 
honestly, as far as like audience reaction, I feel like has been a little easier because people realized how important it was in their lives when it was definitely taken for granted before. So I think when you, when, you know, all you have to do next time is lock people in their homes for four months and then they appreciate comedians. Uh, <laughs> we are definitely the most underappreciated, disrespected of the art forms because everyone thinks they can do it because it's just, you know, getting up there and, you know, everyone's made their friend laugh before I understand the concept. Uh, but, and then, uh, you know, I, I also recently started doing road work. So I was in Tempe, Arizona last week. And uh, I remember when I was surprised by how safe ever and responsible everyone was being as far as wearing masks and social yeah. distancing and being clean, really pleasantly surprised. Uh, and, and again, like, you know, people just trying to laugh and get things back to normal. It was a, it was a good experience. Obviously comedians are a little, a little sloppier than we normally are, but audiences have been patient so yeah. with me the, reading out of my notebook crazy thoughts that i had the, the, there, there, there is something there is something real about the um you know the live element of being able sitting in a room of people and watching a person do their thing live that um i really hope that that we don't we don't lose that i, I really hope that our consumption of you know comedy or any other kind of artwork is just sort of relegated to um, you know whatever screen you have in front of you because I feel like uh, I feel like in the same way that that it sort of helped kind of a little breakdown of of uh, social graces I, I think it'll, mm -hmm. it'll I, I just hope we can get that back. Um, yeah, I think there are a couple things that you just can't do on the internet. Even yeah. in, in film school, I went to the School of Visual Arts and one of our, you know, our professors would often talk about uh, the importance of watching film in uh, a theater and, and being around other people's reactions. And I'm a big horror film fan. Mm. Uh, and I think especially for horror movies to, you know, get that sense uh, of, you know, impending doom. Uh, sometimes you do need to be in the darkness surrounded by others. Like that's how those films were made. And, and it does, it doesn't hit the same way when you're on your couch uh, periodically looking down at your text messages uh -huh. mm -hmm. because you're, because you, you're too distracted. There's lights, there's, you know, your real life is there. And uh, there is a, a certain beauty in turning your phone off, you know, for 90 minutes to two hours and, and going into this other world that a director has created for you. And, I, and the same is that, you know, I, I some of the most brilliant minds in, in, in comedy have made comedy specials where I was like, uh, and it makes me so disappointed yeah. because so many people have never experienced comedy live. It's not people. It's people don't think of going to a comedy show the same way that they, you know, say, let's catch a movie tonight or let's go to dinner. Um, and I've never seen anyone's co taped comedy special that captured how good they really are on stage. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, cool. Uh, any uh, any last words? <laughs> any la any la uh, Before we die, I, I, I have to be a good boss at fire. Um, yeah. So so I, I would say three things. Definitely check out. Can we take a joke? Um, Ted uh, and I are thinking about making some kind of follow up. Ted is actually working on a documentary about coddling of the American mind. Oh, cool. uh, check out Calling the American Mind. I, I, I'm extremely proud of it. It's still selling like it's a new book, which is amazing. Right. Um, and definitely, you know, Mighty Ira. Um, you know, I got three things that I'm just super duper proud of. And I think they would do a good job of explaining why free speech is so important to a younger generation. Cool. And, uh, and Corinne? 
Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I have two podcasts, guys. We fucked the anti-slut shaming podcast. It is exclusive to Luminary now, but there's like six and a half years of free archival content that you would have to work your way through to even be ready for that. So you're good. Uh, and then I also have Without a Country with Joe DeRosa that's on lives on Gas Digital, but always available for free as well, wherever you listen to podcasts. And that's probably, you know, most interesting for people who were tuning into this show. Uh, and then just, you know, support uh, live comedy. I know you he probably hear it a lot and it sounds like nothing, but you know, to go and watch a comedy show and not raise your hand in the middle and <laughs> say that you disagree with a joke, it really means the world to us. How dare you, sir? <laughs> <laughs>